to. But right now, I'd like to invite Danae to come up and read um, our psalm for us this morning. Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful song. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Friends, you've heard the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So it is uh, summer reading time in our house, and we have already procured some of our summer reading books. Our oldest daughter, uh, Bailey, is about to start, uh, uh, gosh, I was about to say kindergarten. (laughs) Man, if only. She's about to start high school. (laughs) which is the opposite of kindergarten. Uh, but Bailey has a couple of books uh, that she's reading uh, this summer. Uh, one is called the, uh, this one really grabbed my attention. Um, it is called uh, Phineas Gage, a gruesome but true story about brain science. So that'll be a little bit of light reading uh, for the summer. And then the other one uh, is, is essays on a human-centered uh, planet. Um, so those are, you know, like, fluffy, feel-good, toes-in-the-sand kind of summer reading uh, books. Brayden, uh, my rising junior, uh, is also reading a book uh, for the summer, and he got to choose a book from a list. And Brayden, man after my own heart, chose Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods. And I, it is like there are a handful of books that I read over and over again, and that is one of them. Uh, And my wife always knows when I'm reading that book because I'll be laying in bed at night and chuckling, like the bed is shaking because I'm chuckling to myself over something that I've just read. And, uh, and, and so I, I, I'm excited. I will probably try to read that along with him so that we can dialogue about it and, and talk about it. But we've entered that time of year where I, I, would, I would hope that now your social media feed is, is not filled with like vile, you know, political rhetoric. Instead, people are doing something much more beautiful and sharing uh, their recommendations for summer reading books. Now, if you don't have friends who are readers and they're not sharing those things with you, you can, I mean, pick a news source and just, just search like, you know, recommended summer reading. But I will tell you, depending on where you go, like you are going to get a different list of 25 books to read. So don't be overwhelmed. You could just go back and read something that you know you enjoy already. We've talked about that before. I, I have a great tendency to read the same books over and over because I feel like my time is, is precious and I don't want to be disappointed in a book. I just want to go back to the ones that I know that I love. And so this summer I'm going to reread the Chronicles of Narnia um, because I love that just sweet... Why is that funny? <laughs> Why? Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to reread the Chronicles of Narnia, or maybe I'll have my mommy read them to me. Um, <clears throat> I, he- I see what y'all are doing. Uh, and, and there are also some ministry-related books that I'm excited about, about reading. Uh, but some are just, it feels like it, it creates space for that, right? Our, our rhythm is, is a little bit different. Even if you work during the summer, then I hope and pray that you're you feel kind of the difference in rhythm as we've, we've entered uh, summertime and, and that you would take advantage of an opportunity to, 
to engage your mind in, in different ways and maybe put down uh, the electronic device and, and, and pick up um, something that will engage your mind in new ways. Uh, if, if you are just, you know, feel like I'm, I'm at a loss, I don't really know what I'm going to read, or you already have a stack of books to read, I'd like to offer another one, um, and that would be the Bible. Uh, yeah, great way to spend your summer. Uh, so it, it has been customary for us, if you've been with us over recent summers, you know that one of the things that we like to do is to, is to do some summer reading together. Uh, we have read through and, and preached through the book of Acts together in the summer. We've preached through John's gospel. Um, and, and the reason that we like to take an extended amount of time and do that in the summer, one, it's, it's a beautiful thing for us as a church to journey through a book of Scripture um, together, to know that, you know, if we're, if we're all living into it, and, and it creates a little bit of accountability, but if we're all living into it, then we're all reading God's Word together and creating space for God to speak and for the Holy Spirit to move through the things that we're reading. It also creates some accountability um, as, we're, as we're preaching it and as you're reading it, because we have this tendency in Scripture to skip over the passages maybe that are a little bit more difficult or the ones that we don't understand or, you know, in preaching, you might try to avoid those things that you're like, I don't really have no idea what this is saying. So let's go to something that's maybe a little more familiar and easier to talk about. But um, now I will say that, that our summer reading this summer is the Psalms. We're not going to, we're not, I'm not going to preach on 150 Psalms. That's, that would take us more than 10 weeks. Uh, it would take us 150 weeks, right? And until you get to um, Psalm 119, and then we'd have to break that up into several weeks. So we're talking about more than half of a year that we would spend in the Psalms. And maybe one day we'll do that. But for this summer, we've selected 10 Psalms uh, that, that we feel like will give us a, just a beautiful picture of what the Psalms are and, and the beauty of the Psalms. And I want to encourage you again, if you have not um, picked up your booklet in the back, that is your, that's our, our gift to you. And don't get too excited about it. It's just paper folded and stapled together with psalms on it, but uh, we didn't, it's not bound in leather or anything beautiful like that. But we would invite you to take that with you and, and, and allow that to be kind of the way that we journey together through the summer. So over the next 10 weeks, that also allows that if you miss a week or if you miss a couple of Sundays because you're on vacation, you, you know where we're going to be and you can still be a part of that journey uh, together. So we would encourage you to take that because in on each page, um, you'll have the psalm for a given week, and then some questions to think about. And on some of them, you have some space to, to journal um, and to think about how that, that psalm hits you. So um, that, that'll be the, the 10 weeks. And, and if you are feeling ambitious and don't want to just do a psalm a week, if you would like to read psalms through the summer, I would encourage you to do that. It, it would take you reading beginning tomorrow about three psalms a day, uh, actually like 2.3 psalms, but I wouldn't you know, recommend just stopping a third of the way through a psalm that you read. Uh, when you get to Psalm 119, you're, you're probably going to want to break that up a little bit uh, because it is longer. Uh, but just want to invite you to, to spend some time with us in the psalms together. And before we jump into Psalm uh, 100, I want to just maybe lift up for you some, some things about the psalms that is helpful when we consider why, why would we take the summer rather than doing something that is uh, more narrative, like Acts or like one of the Gospels, why would we choose something like, like the Psalms? Now, many of us might have Psalms that are favorites. And when you, when you think of Psalms, maybe for you, Psalm 23 is the first thing that, that comes to mind. 
um, or, or maybe pieces of, of other psalms. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Or Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. There, there, are, there are things that come to mind about the Psalms, but I think in order for us to really appreciate why we would want to take time this summer and read through the Psalms, we have to understand that for God's people, the Psalms in, in many ways was, was the hymn book. It was, it was the, what directed uh, their worship. It was what gave voice to the things that God's people were feeling because these Psalms were written at different points in, in the collective life of God's people, at different points in history. Some of them were written in exile. Some of them were written upon return from exile. David uh, wrote some of the Psalms, and we'll look at uh, one of David's more famous Psalms this summer, Psalm uh, 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. The other thing that we have to appreciate about the Psalms is that they, they capture, and, and I think you really begin to see this when you, you know, if you were to take the time as I've suggested and just let's walk through the Psalms in their entirety this summer. You begin to find that they capture the range of human emotion more completely and more beautifully, more poignantly than any other book in, in Scripture that the Psalms capture the range of human emotion. It gives voice to those things that we feel and oftentimes are afraid to voice to God. Now, we, we can be fine voicing praise to God, and that's what we'll talk about this morning, the, the invitation and the call to voice praise and thanksgiving to God who is worthy of our praise. But then there are things that we feel like we want to say to God, and, and maybe some of us hold back because we're like, oh, I don't know how God's going to feel about me saying this thing that I really want to say. And then yet, as we journey through the Psalms, we see that the psalmist did not hold back. They were very honest about the anguish that they might be feeling. They were very honest about the pain and the confusion and the frustration, both as an individual and then on behalf of God's people. And they were willing to name and to voice those things before the God of creation, before the God who, who called Israel out of captivity and into freedom, who made good on his promise to Abraham and gave them the promised land and only for them to find themselves subjugated again and again and again by different kingdoms that were more powerful than they were. And so you see this journey of human emotion captured so beautifully. Walter Brueggemann says this about the Psalms. The Psalms are helpful because they are genuinely, they are a genuinely dialogical literature that expresses both sides of the conversation of faith. On the one hand, Israel's faithful speech addressed to God is the substance of the Psalms. The Psalms do this so fully and so well because they articulate the entire gamut of Israel's speech to God. From profound praise to the utterance of unspeakable anger and doubt. On the other hand, as Martin Luther under, understood so passionately, the Psalms are not only addressed to God, they are the voice of the gospel, God's good word addressed to God's faithful people. In this literature, the community of faith has heard and continues to hear the sovereign speech of God, who meets the community in its depths of need and in its height of celebration. 
The Psalms draw our entire life under the rule of God, where everything must be, may be submitted to the God of the gospel. Friends, we, like God's people, are pilgrims on this earth. God's people began to understand that, that what they held as so faithful and what they held as so secure in this land that God had given them, they began to realize that in their unfaithfulness and their unwillingness to serve and love God, the God of creation, their God, the God who called them out of captivity, and their unwillingness to serve Him as God alone, God would discipline them, and part of that discipline meant that they would be taken into captivity. And so community, city, temple, all of these things that they held as so secure and and, and their identities were so wrapped up in that, when they saw those things destroyed, when they were ripped away from them, they began to question so many things about themselves. And one of the things that they began to realize is that they were merely pilgrims. We are merely pilgrims, pilgrims, and for everything that we try to calculate about our lives and for everything that we try to ordain about our own lives, we have to understand that we are merely pilgrims on this earth. And yet, in our journey here, we have been given songs to sing. We have been given voice to our deepest prayers. We have been given voice to our deepest frustrations, our deepest points of sadness in the Psalms. And we might find that there is actually a gift in our emotion and a gift in humanity, our humanness, if you will, that God knows that about us and God is willing to meet us there and that God is not off put by our humanity, our humanness, our brokenness, our frailty. I think that when we come to a place where we are willing to be more honest about what we are feeling and more honest about the way that our circumstances are affecting us, then we find that God is actually present in those things in ways that maybe we didn't see before because we weren't willing to be honest before the God of creation. And the Psalms not only gives us permission to do that, but gives a voice to the things that we might be feeling. There's a fascinating documentary and and a conversation that happened between Eugene Peterson, who uh, was, the, was a pastor, was the author of, of many books, one of which I'm, I'm reading right now, uh, another of which you may be familiar with, entitled The Message. Uh, and, and I saw a different interview with you, Eugene Peterson, and the guy begins the interview by saying, hey, remember when you wrote the Bible? That was pretty awesome. And, and so, you know, Peterson set out to, to try to adapt in a faithful way the, the language of, of Scripture, and, and he began to do so by just taking a psalm and trying to, to write it and, and recapture it and re, uh, retool it in, in a way that a friend of his could understand. Like it was, you know, he never set out to say, I'm, from beginning to end, I'm, I'm going to take what we know as the Bible and, and try to give it language that is easy for people to understand. Uh, and that wasn't his intention, and yet that was where he went from, from writing the psalms to, to this thing that we now have as, as the message. And, and, and I, I would encourage you as you're reading whatever translation it is that you may read, if you are a King James, if you are an NIV, or if you are an NRSV, ESV, whatever, I, I would encourage you to take a look. If you've, you know, as you're reading a passage, and even this summer uh, as we're in the Psalms, look at, at the way that, that the message and, and that Eugene Peterson, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has, has captured these words. 
So you have Eugene Peterson as a part of this conversation, but then you have maybe an unlikely person to sit across from the table with Eugene Peterson, and that is this guy that maybe some of you have heard of. His name is Bono, uh, and the lead singer of this little Irish band uh, called U2. The most unlikely of characters to sit down at a table together. And, and yet they have this conversation about the Psalms. And it was funny, as, as I was looking at that this week, I learned that, um, that, that Eugene Peterson is maybe the only person ever to turn down an invitation to Bono uh, to come and have a visit with him. Um, and, you know, and Bono's like, I, I reached out to him and, and I, wanted him, I wanted to spend time with him. And he, he replied back and said, I'm sorry, I can't. I don't think you tell Bono, no, that you can't do something. And, and Peterson's um, excuse was, I, I was up against a deadline. I was in the middle of Isaiah at, the point, uh, at that point. So uh, maybe there's some grace there because he's trying to translate Isaiah. Uh, but they sit down and have this conversation uh, about the Psalms, uh, which I think will help, um, help frame this as we prepare to get into Psalm 100. Peterson is, is speaking of U2's um, Song 40, which is based on the 40th Psalm. He says it's one of the Psalms that reaches into the hurt and disappointment and difficulty of being a human being. It acknowledges that that in a language that is immediately recognizable, something that reaches into the heart of a person. It is the stuff we all feel, but many of us don't talk about. And in speaking of Growing up reading scripture, Eugene Peterson says, I learned about metaphor by reading the Psalms. Not because I knew what metaphor was, but because I began to see that the Psalms showed me that imagination was a way to get inside the truth. Bono says the Psalms have this rawness, this brutal honesty. The psalmist is brutally honest about the explosive joy that he is feeling as well as the deep sorrow or confusion, and it is that that sets the psalms apart for me and makes me wonder, gosh, why is the church not more like that? Imagine what the church could begin to look like if we were more honest about the challenges of being human and more honest about how deep our need is for God to come in. I I talked to so many of you and and my upbringing was was not very different, who, who were raised to believe that to be a follower of Christ, to be a good Christian meant that you you had to act and behave in a certain way. And, and by behave in a certain way, I mean you had to behave. And that was everything from the way that you dressed to the way that you spoke to the way that you acted, particularly the way that you carried yourself when you were in church. And I think that God is worthy of our reverence. No, I know that God is worthy of our reverence, but God is also worthy of our honesty. And imagine what the gospel would begin to look like in the ears of people that we seek to share the gospel with if we were honest about our own brokenness and our own doubts and our own confusion and our own frustration and our own mess. Then all of a sudden the gospel begins to take a different shape, it actually maybe does begin to sound like good news and not another set of rules that you have to follow. 
And the first psalm that we have this morning, the challenge, the invitation for us, Psalm 100, a psalm for giving grateful praise. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. What do we think about that, Robbie? How do we feel about shouting for joy? Yes. Now, for some of you who maybe grew up in a different tradition, that's like, now we're uncomfortable. Like, I can tolerate it at the end of a worship song, but now we've just crossed a line. We're reading scripture, it's time for the message, there's no shouting. And yet the psalmist, in this psalm for giving grateful praise, commands the people to shout for joy. Shout for joy to the Lord who? All the earth. All the earth. So we begin to understand something about God's design for humanity is that we are a people who worship. We are a people who were actually created to worship. We are always going to worship something. The question is, what is the thing that we are going to worship? Where does the focus of your attention and your affection land? Is it on the God of creation or is it something less than that? And I think for many of us, the reason that we have a difficult time stepping into what it means to worship God is because we are assigning worship to lesser things every day in our lives. All people. This is not just for the chosen people of God at this time. God's people, Israel, that he called his special possession. The people through whom he would do what? Bless the entire world. The entire earth. That was the promise that God gave to Abraham when he called him. The entire trajectory of God's relationship with humanity The entire point of the Great Commission that we see in Matthew chapter 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all races, nations, and people. We read last week at the beginning of Acts. Go to Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria, go to the ends of the earth. And for those Jewish men who heard those words from Jesus, Samaria meant that they were to go to the place that they did not want to go to a people that they thought were less worthy than the dirt under their feet. And Jesus says, nope, the good news is for them as well. That is the trajectory of God's story and relationship with humanity that all would know. In Revelation chapter 7, beginning with verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out aloud, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A great multitude from every tribe, people, language, nation standing before the throne. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Makes me wonder, are we doing our part as the church to invite others into that unending chorus? 
Because we ourselves are simply stepping into a song that began long before we got here. What is the role that you are playing in inviting others into this unending song? Do we look at them as other or do we look at them as those who have not yet been invited to participate in the worship of the God of creation? Because that is God's heart. That is the command here. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. And this, this idea of, of shouting there, and it, I, I, granted, I, I'll give you, it's much easier to do that uh, as we are in the midst of song. It's a whole lot uh, more uncomfortable, perhaps, uh, or, or we're not sure what to do with it when we're just invited to shout out randomly in worship. And yet, that is one of the ways that we participate in our worship of God. And, and God's the intention here and the instruction is not that there would just be loud noises at random times, but it is at the re- realization of the presence of the King. So in biblical times, historically, this is one of the things that would signify the presence of the king among the people, is that there would be shouts of joy, because the king for them represented security, the king represented strength, and for them as a people, they knew that they would be safe, that they would be protected, that they would be victorious. And so we see even in the Old Testament, when the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the camp, shouts of joy go up, and it's described as shouting so loud that the earth shook. And as their enemies are watching this happen, now all of a sudden they're thinking differently about this ragtag group of people that they are about to attack. Because the earth is shaking because of shouts of joy, because the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant has come into their midst. How do we respond to the presence of God in our midst? I think for many of us, that's a place where we have a difficult time. When, when Jesus is marching, riding into Jerusalem on what we celebrate as Palm Sunday, the people are shouting and the religious leaders at that time say to Jesus, hey, you need to tell your disciples to be quiet. And, and Jesus responds essentially saying, look, I, if I tell them to be quiet, then, then the stones will cry out. All of creation exists to worship and bring glory to God. And yet sometimes we have a difficult time finding our voice. We might say, well, I, I, don't, I don't know, I'm not really, like I'm not really an, an emotional person. How many golfers do we have in here? I'm kind of jokingly raising my hand. Like I, there's like four people in my life that I will, they're like my circle of trust that I will play golf with. Not because I'm awesome, but because I'm terrible. But I still go, right? But let's just, just imagine as a golfer, you, you tee up on a par three and, and everything, every, everything goes right. Right, you hit that ball straighter than you've ever hit it and you watch it land on the green, and you watch it roll into the cup. Hole in one. All right, if that happens, what's your response going to be? Is it going to be something like, oh, that's pleasant. <laughs> no way. You're going to be shouting at people that you, like, you don't even know. It doesn't matter. Like, like you know, the beverage cart drives by, and you're going to be shouting at them that you just got a hole in one on a par three. 
I mean, it, it's like, you know, for me, when, when I beat Michigan on that glorious day, I'm, I'm driving, I've told you the story, but it's, it's a beautiful illustration. Like, I'm driving into town, I'm listening to it on the radio, game over, we did the impossible, I literally stop my car and get out of it and shout to no one that this thing had just happened. Like on the side of the road approaching Newmarket Center, and I'm sure people are like, I, I, I'm not, I'm staying away from that guy. <laughs> Something is not right. And yet there was just this emotion that I could not contain. And we do that about, really, when you think about it, in the grand scope of eternity, really insignificant things. And yet we feel like we have to hold back and are reserved when we are talking about an opportunity to worship the God of creation, the God who is altogether apart and altogether different and altogether holy, and yet in the person of Jesus has chosen to come near. How? How is it that God is somehow not worthy of emotion, that God is somehow not worthy of our shouts of praise? Worship the Lord with gladness, come before Him with joyful songs. That word for uh, worship there again in, in verse 2 is, is a, a term that also means serve. It, it's a kind of a comprehensive uh, term in Hebrew. It, it is, yes, used to def- describe acts of praise, but it is also used to describe just your everyday kind of living life acts of service. Brother Lawrence has this beautiful little book called The Practice of the Presence of God in which he seeks to kind of unpack this idea that in our everyday, our everyday lives, our everyday ordinary things that we do, there is this opportunity to understand and begin to live into the reality that God is present even in the mundane. And so it's not just in our worship and our vocal expression of gladness and thanksgiving to God, but it's also in the way that you do and live into the things that God has placed right before you. Right? If, if you are the mom of a little one and you are just knee-deep in diapers, change those diapers to the glory of God. If, if God has, has given you, you know, the kind of work in which maybe you are bagging groceries every day or you're waiting tables or you're bussing tables or whatever it is, like serve in a way that, that speaks about your life and your understanding of your life as being connected to something much larger than just what you're doing in that moment. And yet the thing that is larger is as present in that moment and is as near to you as the very breath that you are breathing. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. I hope you begin to to see this is what we call theocentric language in which God is at the center of it. Know that the Lord, it is God. It is He who made us. We belong to who? Him. We are His. We are His people, the sheep of what? His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. And so much of the language that we take up, and even some of the language, if we're not careful, of of the songs that that we love, 
is we find ourselves in the center of it. And, and that is the great temptation of humanity. And it's what Adam and Eve fell prey to at the very beginning, our first parents. Like, hey, don't you think that you deserve this? Don't you think that God has withheld this from you? Shouldn't you have this thing that you, that you desire? Look how appealing it is to the eye. And so we reach out and we, we take that thing that God says, no, that's not my best for you. But we do that because we are, we are tempted to place ourselves at the center of the universe. And that has been the temptation of humanity all along, and the enemy knows how to prey on that. God once intended this for your good, but, but what about this thing that God says is not good? Don't you think you deserve that? Why would God, who is loving, withhold that from you? And this psalm is a beautiful example of, of what it begins to look like to place God at the center to understand that it's all His. His name is worthy to be praised. We are His sheep. His sheep and His pasture. For the church, for us as individuals, God-centered worship is critical. It is crucial. Because this world and, and the enemy will always seek to steal our attention and steal our focus and somehow do this great shift in which we are tempted to place ourselves in the center. We have a difficult time because we think that we know best. We know best what we need. We know best how to achieve it, how to gain it, how to have it. We know best how to numb the pain. We know best how to deal with the confusion. We know best how to, how to seek companionship. We know best how to seek pleasure This, this great lie that we have bought into. And yet the invitation here is one that says, no, it's, it's God who will shepherd you. It's God who will protect you. It's God who will give you green pastures in which to graze. It's God who will give you life and life to the full. American theologian J. Vernon McGee used to say, this is God's universe and he does things his way. And, and you may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe in which to explore your better way of doing things. Because it all belongs to God. And ultimately, God, I believe in his faithfulness and his loving kindness will allow us to get to the end of our rope of trying to do it our way. And bring us to this, this place where we are willing to say, you know what, I, I can't. Can't, I can't do it on my own. God, I need you. And that shepherd who knows the names of each sheep will always leave in pursuit of the one who is lost. Will always find you where you are. Will always bring you back into green pastures. The one who is worthy of our praise, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. What are the things that you do in preparation to, to enter this space on Sunday mornings? What are the things that you do in preparation to enter into God's word? To enter into his courts, to enter into 
this place of communion with the Lord. Because even as we read in Hebrews, even through the work of Jesus, the great high priest, even the holy of holies has been opened to us. That through Christ we have access to God, the creator of everything that we see. And if you look around you right now, this is one of my favorite times to be in the high country because it's waking up. Right after the slumber of winter, everything is waking up. And its very existence is an act of praise and an act of worship to the God who created it. And we have an opportunity to step into that worship, to step into that song. Why? For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. This is language that is covenant language. Is, is God good when tragic things happen in places when innocent children's lives are taken as God good even then? It's hard to see it, isn't it? And that's honest. We should ask where, God, where is your goodness when something like that is happening? When a life might be taken from us sooner than we would like. When relationship might be on the rocks, God, are you, are you still good? And I believe if we are willing to wrestle with what we're feeling in that moment and willing to ask, God, where is your covenant still true? Where are the promises that you say that you, there's, there's no place that we're not, that you never leave us nor forsake us, that you're always at work, that you're always present? God, help me to see that. Right, the call to praise and the call to worship does not ignore the pain of this world. But it is a call to root ourselves in something that is both outside of, deeper than, and yet is able to be present in even our circumstances so that our circumstances no longer dictate the condition of our hearts. That the covenant reality of this good God who loves us and calls us his own through Jesus dictates the condition of our hearts. It allows us to feel sadness in a way that sees hope in the midst of it. It allows us to have questions in a way that believes that we will see an answer. It allows us to be frustrated, to be confused in a way that we believe that all things will be revealed so that the world does not get to dictate who we are as God's people, that it is rooted, our identity, our understanding of this world and the, who we are called to be in it is rooted in the reality of who God is, a God who is faithful to his promises, a God who will not break covenant with his people. Friends, as we begin this journey through the Psalms together this summer, I invite you to consider what would it look like to be a person who lives a life of gracious thanksgiving to God? God's not after your begrudging submission. God longs for a people who are freed into him in such a way that our lives become lives of thanksgiving. Maybe you know people like that. I've, I've spoken over the past few weeks about my grandmother. That woman was the most grateful person I've ever met in my life, but it's because of who she knew Jesus to be in her life because she, her circumstances were incredibly difficult, and yet her faith and the thanksgiving that was always on her lips affected the environment around her. What if we became a church who lived that way, that didn't ignore the pain in this world or the confusion or the hurt, 
but who said, hey, you know what, even in the midst of it, I have a song to sing. And sometimes the volume of that song might be a little bit lower, but there are times when, when all I can do is shout because God is worthy of it all. God has given me a voice, and I'm going to use that voice to, to proclaim the goodness of God. When I see hurt and brokenness around me, I'm going to come alongside that because I know that there's something deeper than even that. How is God calling you to be a people of thanksgiving, to be a person of worship and praise? Let's pray. God, you are, you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our praise for all the ways that you have been faithful, for all of the ways that you continue to shepherd us to seek us when we are lost, to bind us up when we are wounded, to care for us, even in the places that we didn't know we needed to be cared for. You are worthy. I pray that you would forgive us for the ways that we somehow believe that the trajectory of your interaction with humanity stops at us. Rather, it is a trajectory, God, that you invite us into because there are people in the world around us for whom praise seems silent, seems removed, it seems impossible. It seems impossible that they could call anything good. Would you give us eyes to see where that is around us? Would you make us a people who are a people of thanksgiving? And to know that there are times that that thanksgiving results in shouts of praise and there are times when it is simply the peace in which we rest. God, would you burden our hearts for this world around us that we might take that hope to those who so desperately need it. Make us a people whose worship is assigned to the only one who is worthy. A people who are not afraid of emotion but of people who are willing to approach you honestly, to know that you meet us there. It's in Jesus' powerful name that we pray these things. Amen.